Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Uh, welcome to an amazing Saturday session. I'm looking forward to an incredible session because we've had so much technical difficulty, weather difficulty, things that have been trying to cause us delay and all of that stuff. So, but we are here and we are um, so excited, or I'm so excited to continue on day three of Surah Al-Hajj. Um, I, of course, as always, have to call attention to yesterday's um, really powerful, deep, epic khutbah. Um, it's titled Measuring um, One's Moral Illness, The Devil is in the Details. Um, it started out um, with um, talking about, well, one of the issues is this: the Saudi student who's um, retweeted um, a, something about uh, from uh, political dissidents and ended up going back home. She's a student, a PhD student at Leeds University, went back to Saudi um, and got arrested because of this retweet. Um, and then was convicted um, and sentenced to 34 years in prison. And then once she is released from prison, she was sentenced to an additional 34 years where she basically can't leave the country. And that's, that's that. And she has uh, you know, a husband and, and two young children. Um, and you know, people have heard about the obscenity of this now. Um, but you know, in, um, in measuring sort of the moral illness of our times. Um, Sheikh was, you know, very detailed in pointing out the irony of, you know, we have, as we're talking about Surah Al-Hajj and this, the sacredness of the space and the sacredness of, um, you know, the, of Mecca, um, the people who are in charge are capable of doing something so obscene as sentence and, and someone's life um, effectively over a tweet. Um, and then, you know, Sheikh shared a lot of other details, a lot, of, a lot of other things happening in our world where you just see this crazy incongruence between what we understand as justice and beauty um, and Islam and then the reality on the ground. Um, and so, you know, it's a, it's a powerful khutbah because he, as often does, um, usually does, is provide us with tools and questions and things in order for us to interrogate you know, what is the state of our moral health? Um, what is our reaction? When we see the state of, you know, Mecca and Hajj and the things that are happening there and taking place, what is our reaction when we compare that to the things that Muslims often get very worked up about, whether a woman is wearing hijab, whether, um, you know, people are, you know, arguing about this detail or that detail. But when you look at um, the priority, the ethical priority of things, um, that is a measure of our, you know, collective moral health or moral illness, and really got into a very powerful discussion um, about Surah Al-Hajj and the message that, you know, justice is is not just about saying yes, I believe, and that um, I, you know, I'm a good person and I pray and I do all of that, but it's also your reaction to the details on the ground. Um, so, what happens? What's your reaction to real justice or real injustice? Um, and that justice is contextual. That's a message from Surah Hajj that I believe we, we hopefully will cover today. So it's extremely powerful, um, really epic, <laughs> very detailed um, khutbah that I really encourage people to watch. Um, you know, and as we're talking about Surah Al Hajj, and also you know recently I've been talking about um, you know conversion, and we had you know I want to just highlight again for people if they haven't watched um, this wonderful convert conversation I had with my dear friend Joe and Witzki. Um, you know, uh, this it reminded me of um, uh, something that was very transformative early on in my journey that I thought I would just share very briefly, 
Um, I know that, like, when I first converted, a lot of people came up to me and said, oh, alhamdulillah, you know, you're a convert. You know that means that all of your sins are going to be wiped away. Um, and even, you know, I, like, heard from, um, you know, heritage Muslims that, you know, that every time you go to Hajj, um, you actually, all of your sins are automatically wiped away. And it's like you've completely cleaned your slate. And I, I thought that was um, interesting and beautiful, but I didn't know whether... It, it seemed it, it sort of smacked a little bit of all you need to do is accept Jesus Christ and all of your sins are, are you know forgiven so I had a question mark in my mind about this and this is one of the questions that I asked Sheikh early on when I met him is, is that actually true you know are my sins all forgiven once I convert to Islam and he said no it's not true um, although this is what people like to say but um, you know to be forgiven requires repentance and repentance requires not just the ability to say, you know, I've been bad, please forgive me, God, this sort of like general idea of please just forgive me. But it is, again, the, the devil is in the details, right? And it's like tied into what he was saying yesterday is repentance means that you actually go really deep into, you know, confronting yourself and saying, okay, what, what have I done? What am I asking God for forgiveness for? So, you know, it's not good enough just to say, uh, you know, I was a bad person and I, I hurt people, but it actually needed to go to the point of, you know, I, I need to ask your forgiveness, God, because I was unkind to my mother on that day because I acted arrogantly and I did X, Y, and Z. And, you know, it, it's like the more detailed, the more um, you actually acknowledge what you've done, you confront yourself, you even confront your, your capacity or ability as a human being to commit certain types of sin. And then you can actually ask, truly ask for, you know, forgiveness. Um, and that is really the measure of repentance. And it's an important exercise, too, because when you're that honest with yourself, and it's certainly very difficult to do, um, you actually confront who you are, what you're capable of, of doing, um, how you're capable of committing certain types of sins. And by recognizing that, then you can actually focus on not doing it again. So you can imagine, like, if you just say, well, just forgive me, I was a bad person, and you haven't confronted any of the things that you actually do or who you are or what your tendencies are, then you're just going to commit those same sins all over again. And so that was a really, really powerful um, message um, or, you know, lesson for me early on. And, um, you know, it led to, um, I mean, alhamdulillah, you know, not everyone can marry a sheikh and then, you know, have someone walk you through what you need to do, but it's, it, it required that I spend a lot of time in my journey, you know, confronting myself and looking at the details, you know, the devil in the details of what I did and working my way through that. And that was extremely powerful and liberating. And as I've often said here, um, it seems that kind of the closest model to that work that's being done in our time and in our context is the 12-step program at AA, um, you know, or Narcotics Anonymous, or, you know, some of these programs that focus on addiction um, that really force you to look at, you know, yourself and how you've interacted with others, the sins you've committed, um, you know, ultimately, um, you know, take accountability for that and make amends. Um, that is a really powerful um, tool that's available for people. Um, and you don't have to be an addict. Um, you could be, you know, know someone or love someone who's an addict to go through that um, and it's um, but it's also just part of the picture I mean these are the tools to get you to that point also I believe what we're learning here with the Quran um, covers the Islamic part of it so it's it's two things together um, from you know at least from where I'm sitting so anyway I just wanted to share that story because as we're learning more about Hajj and Mecca the sacredness of things and you know also um, 
talking about some of the convert experience, I always like to add um, some of the really valuable things that I've learned on my journey, alhamdulillah. So anyway, with that, thank you so much for joining us. And um, I'm so looking forward to um, day three. We'll see if it's the last uh, engagement with Surah Al-Hajj. But inshallah, it'll be fabulous. So thank you. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen wa subhanallah al-aliyyil azim. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala al-habib al-mustafa Muhammad. Khatamu al-anbiya'i wa al-rusli ajma'in. Al-mustar rahmatan lil-alameen wa ala alihi al-athar al-mayameen wa ala ashabi al-mukhtarin wa ala man ittaba'ahum min ahsanin ila yawm al-deen. اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين I am told that we stopped at 54 uh, إن شاء الله uh, today I plan to finish Surah Al-Hajj um, and I will again as I said before I don't want to go ayah by ayah because that there's no point in that um, the the main thing is to understand the the thematic movements and then at the end inshallah I will summarize the message of Surah Al-Hajj, the totality of the message. Um, with some commentary as to the role of Surah Al-Hajj at the time it was uh, revealed. Um, so we, we stopped, we talked about uh, the, the the so-called satanic verses um, traditions, um, the hadith al-gharanit as um, as is uh, known, and um, the message of the Quran itself. I mean, there there is no reason to believe that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about that shaitan influences or potentially could influence Amani, the Imani of a prophet. That, that uh, in, because the, the text itself, as we notice, إِلَّا إِذَا تَمَنَّ Meaning, shaitan is influencing the wishful desires it it doesn't explicitly refer to anything about revelation and as we said last time th there is many reasons to believe that this entire um narrative about the Gharanit, the, 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 the so-called satanic versus incident is, is a fabrication. Um, 
and the strongest reason is that it contradicts what has already been revealed in the Quran that Allah protects um, the revelation. Uh, and besides, of course, you know, that the, the, um, the, the, the claim that this occurred when the Prophet was reciting Surah Al-Najm. And Surah Al-Najm explicitly names the idols that were worshipped in Quraysh and condemns the worshipment. So to, to think that the Prophet would name these idols but then call them Gharanit, and, and Gharanit means angels. And so call them angels and then call and then say that their uh, intermission is something to be sought out. It, it's just so it, so out there. Um, that it defies all logic and defies all reasoning. And even there something I didn't mention last time is that Surat al-Hajj is either revealed shortly after Hijrah or in the course of Hijrah. And what we know that right before the Hijrah, relations between the Prophet and Quraysh had deteriorated to the point that Quraysh had um, instigated or that had put in force a, a total boycott of Muslims, which, as we've talked about in the past, has caused a considerable amount of trauma and suffering. And then culminating was the plan to assassinate the Prophet and to believe that he is reciting Surat al-Najm out in the open near the Kaaba, and that when he says that Allah wal-Uzza, that these are the gharanit, these are the angels, and that their intermission is to uh, to be thought out, that that Muslims prostrated and the leaders of Quraysh prostrated and a lot of the riwayat it even says and the angels prostrated and the entire world prostrated. So the, 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 uh, the most prominent form of these riwayat claim that it's not just that Quraysh prostrated was Muslims but even the angels prostrated. So even the angels reportedly were deluded and somehow went, their minds went numb. And since angels don't have free will, it defies belief. It doesn't make any sense theologically. But even the historical setting, to say that Quraysh, just because the prophet said, you know, you have the the Quran to date, all the Meccan Quran to date, 
is condemning the deities of Quraysh, condemning the lifestyle of Quraysh. There are a multi-layered number of issues that, that Quraysh, a number of issues that Quraysh has with Muslims, culminating in which things will get so bad to the point that Quraysh decides that they want to kill this man. And to believe that just because of a single revel a single recitation in a single prayer of a single surah, of a single ayah, that all of Quraysh then prostrates with Muslims, it is more theater than historical reality. So it has all the earmarks um, of a fantastical story. And I, I wish that, I mean, you, I, of course, I'm not in, in favor of censoring medieval texts, but I, there are certain things in the tradition that you wish that they would become settled issues. And, you know, we can't keep debating them over and over and over in history. And the satanic verses are uh, w one of those issues that I, you know, you, one wishes were just, it be would become settled that this, this is just a, a fabrication. And especially with, as I talked about the involvement of, um, of the narrations that claim most of, nearly, actually all their narrations go back to Ibn Abbas and those that claim that they heard it from Ibn Abbas, it doesn't work. And also among the narrations that I didn't mention this last time is Al-Waqidi. Um, and Al-Waqidi is unreliable. I mean, as as influential as Al-Waqidi has been with his um, very famous text, the Ghazawat, um, but both the Kalbi and the Waqidi are, are notoriously unreliable. The, the irony, of course, is that uh, um, Ibn Sa'd, who was Al-Waqidi's student, is reliable. But Al-Waqidi himself is not reliable. Anyway. Okay. But the Allah's emphasis that in this process that Allah gives a certain amount of immunity to the Prophet and that this immunity, as we know, is going to become of a critical point after the Hijrah, as at this point that Surah Al-Hajj is revealed, Muslims have yet not encountered uh, all the challenges that they will encounter, like the role of the opposition party and the munafiqun, the hypocrites in Medina, 
and so on and so forth. And for those who took Surah Al-Hajj and its message to heart will remember that sticking closely by the Prophet is the way to weather away these challenges that will be forthcoming in Medina. But then the, the other critical concept introduced is that Allah is, look, 54, وَلْيَعْلَمِ الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْعِلْمِ أَنَّهُ الْحَقُّ مِنْ رَبِّكَ فَيُؤْمِنُوا بِهِ فَتُخْبِتَ لَهُ قُلُوبُهُمْ وَإِنَّ اللَّهَ لَهَادِ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا إِلَى صِرَاطِ الْمُسْتَقِيمِ That the soul of this message is anchored in the divine revelation. The Prophet ﷺ is a human being. And as a human being, he is susceptible to all the vagaries of human perception and human narration. We don't narrate about what God said, what God did today, yesterday, tomorrow. The way that we relate to God is through God's revelation. The Prophet as a human being is a different matter. He is susceptible to all the things that human beings encounter. He will have wives that he will interact with and there will be ups and downs. He will have friends. He will have relatives. He will have people who are jealous. He will have people who are greedy. He will have people who are opportunists. He will have children. Some of these children will die. Some of these children will marry. With, and thus, there will be, through all these interactions, the opportunity for all the participants in the interactions to weigh in with their perceptions their understandings, their memories, all their subjectivities. Because again, we are dealing with a human being. Now, and we've already, in, in, if we've already encountered this subhanallah in, in, in a later revelation, in Surah Al-Mumtahina. But 
if you relate to God through the medium of the subjectivities of the humanness of those who interacted with the Prophet you might get lost because ultimately so just yesterday I was reading some material about the age of Aisha when she married the Prophet and I am increasingly convinced that the historical evidence clearly places clearly would lead one to the clear conclusion that Aisha could not have been under 16 years old when she married and she was between 16 and 20 years old one of these days inshallah if we do the Sira project I'll walk you through the evidence but the evidence is just numerous and cumulative and that the narrations that tell us that she was nine years old when she married came through certain venues again that had their own own interests in and their, their goal was to say that when Aisha entered the political field and in fact, there is a narration that says that Aisha would play with toys right before she, she um, right around the time of the Battle of the Camel. Something so, you would think something so basic as the age of the one of the Prophet's wives when she married the Prophet but the fact of the matter is is that it were it, it, it the, the record is historically unclear not only for Aisha but for nearly all the wives their, their age of birth and the age of birth of most of the Sahaba by the way it's contested because the age of death is something very different but the age of birth because until these people converted to Islam and until there was an Islamic state no one really cared about documenting the date of birth and even the date of death people only became concerned with the date of death when Muslims developed the practice of writing and chronicling, writing chronicles. And then it became a question of interest. But by then, you had chronicles like, like everything in, in, in that, that has to do with history is narrated often by people who have an interest in narrating history the more interested people 
the the people with the strongest incentives are the, usually the ones most involved in narrating. If you're lucky, you'll get someone who really, you know, is not vested in any personal interest, but just narrates for the sake of narration. But people don't realize how rare that is. If the age of the wives of the Prophet, والسلام, was that important, was core to the faith, like the text of the Quran, Allah would have preserved it. Allah didn't pre Allah allowed these issues to be contested because the the challenge is to understand the nature of history, not to make your faith contingent, as you often hear from you know young Muslim kids that you know write and say, "Oh, I'm experiencing a crisis of faith because of this report about the Prophet." You're experiencing a crisis, then 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 you misunderstand faith. It, it, you you can't approach faith through the vagaries of history. Your faith has to come from the from God's speech to you, not from the narrations of human beings that went through their subjectivities. Why am I saying this? Because look at 54, so that those who have real knowledge, so that those with knowledge will know that this is the truth. Of course, it's noteworthy that right after Allah tells us about the humanity, of the Prophet and the challenge of demonic interferences and that the Prophet is immune to the extent that God makes the Prophet immune. Allah comes back and says, people with real knowledge People with real understanding will know that this is the truth. For what purpose? Again, فَتُخْبِتَ لَهُ قُلُوبُهُمْ That critical concept of ikhbat, that their hearts will become humble, will surrender to that truth. Ikhbat is humility, is surrender, is serenity. This path, it put, if I would put it differently, those who approach faith through the vagaries of history are often people who have intellectual pretensions. 
their intellect allows them the arrogance to think that history has to answer to them. And that unless history answers to them, they will not surrender in faith. Well, if that is your attitude, good luck. You will never attain faith. Your faith is fake. It's not real faith. Your, your real faith is in your own intellect. You really, you're really in love with your own brain. And for whatever psychological reasons, you have the pretense of belief. Surrender. Ikhbat. Is an utter state of humility that comes from the light that God's words brings to your heart. It is not, and, and it's like, uh, and this is I mean, part of the, the, the uh, part of the crisis of faith that you find among modern Muslims is their um, eagerness to sidestep the Quran and go to Hadith. Not because there's anything wrong with Hadith, but Hadith is a deeply complicated issue. Even within traditional methods, even if you if you know nothing about modern epistemologies or interpret, interpretive methods or and all you know is the traditional methods, even that is highly complex. To know who the Rijal were and who said what about each transmitter and to know the life story of each transmitter and it is extremely complicated. Now, when you add to that modern methods of interpretation and modern methods of, un, un, uh, of sifting through history, it even becomes more complicated. But it, 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 the Hadith, the Quran speaks right to your heart and it requires transparency and self-honesty and enormous amount of humility. The hadith is often an exercise in egoism. When you pontificate about this hadith or that hadith or so on and intellectual pretensions. It is often a way to sidestep, to avoid the issue of thinking about whether you have genuine faith or you don't, whether your faith in fact is pure or not. And so you, you wrestle 
with things that ultimately have no resolution. If there were resolutions, it wouldn't. We wouldn't be arguing about it fourteen hundred years later. These issues were contested from the first century of Islam, and they continue to be contested today for a reason, and that is because they were not a part of what God guaranteed as immune from human vagaries. Okay. And notice again, as if we need more evidence of this, but This is uh, 55. That those who disbelieve, they will be Mirya is overcome by suspicions. So those who are lack faith, they will be troubled by whatever troubles them until the, the, the final day. What that tells us is there will never be a point where everyone is a Muslim or everyone is a believer. Allah tells us in the Quran disbelief and weakness of faith and suspicions and doubts will remain until the very end. So even as Muslims are about to establish the state in Medina, they were never told that the expectation is that you will make Dar al-Islam spread in the entire world. I mean, if that was an idea at all, that came from the imperial age, not from the prophetic age, and definitely not from the Quranic revelation. Okay. And this idea, by again, it will be addressed by Surah al-Hajj, Again, as we'll see. Okay. Then we get to 58. And at this point, Allah mentions the Hijra. والذين هاجروا في سبيل الله ثم قتلوا أو ماتوا. So those who embark upon a migration for the sake of God and either they die in process or they are killed. لا يرزقناهم الله رزقا حسنا. Their reward is warranted and guaranteed by God. They are guaranteed 
an elevated status. A, put it this way, a most satisfactory status for them. Okay. So, first we're told that, now of course we, we are aware of a historical circumstance, especially when we remember when Surah Al-Hajj is revealed, and we can understand why Allah is mentioning the Hijrah and telling Muslims that that if you are killed or you die in the process of this Hijrah. But it has a more significant meaning in the context of Surah Al-Hajj. There is the Hijrah, the historical Hijrah, that Muslims are embarking on from Mecca to Medina. But yet Surah Al-Hajj, the entire emphasis of Surah Al-Hajj is not on the Hijrah from Mecca to Medina. It is on Al-Bayt Al-Atiq, the old and Allah refers to Bayt al-Atiq as Bayti, God's abode, this primordial abode. And so you confront a very interesting tension and irony in that as Muslims are leaving Mecca, the entire discourse of Surah al-Hajj is about the special status of Mecca, which they are being kicked out of. And Surah Al-Hajj then invokes, reminds Muslims that those who are in a state of hijrah, a number of commentators, Quranic commentators, and a number of scholars noted or noticed what I think is a rather obvious point. And that is, there is the historical hijrah from Mecca and Medina, but there is another hijrah that Muslims embark on and that is, and, and it's, it, it's, a, it's a temporary hijrah, and that is when you travel from wherever you are to visit al-Bayt al-Atiq. And there are plenty of traditions that talk about, that explicitly say that, you know, if you are embarking on hajj and, or, or on a way to visit Mecca and you, you, you die, in the process, you die as a martyr, and so on and so forth. But hold on to this idea because we'll come back to the idea of hijrah. So just remember this, that Surah Al-Hajj comes at this point and 
invokes the concept of hijra and it, it's it leaves open the interpretive possibilities of what type of hijra to where. And then right after Zadika Zadika here it's like saying albeit or bear in mind or um, that being the case وَمَنْ عَاقَبَ بِمِثْلِ مَا عُوقِبَ بِهِ ثُمَّ بُغِيَ عَلَيْهِ لَيَنْصُرَنَّهُ اللَّهِ إِنَّ اللَّهِ لَعَفُوٌ غَفُورٌ There are, there is, this is uh, 60. Muhammad Asad uh, translates it as Zash shall it be and as Muhammad says, uh, thus shall it be and as for him who responds to aggression only to the extent of the attack leveled against him and is thereupon again treacherously attacked God will most certainly secure him for behold God is indeed an absolver of sins and most forgiving so if you respond to aggression in a proportionate way, so you've addressed an injustice that has befallen you, but even then you became the subject of further injustice. So as Muhammad Asad puts it, and is thereupon again treacherously attacked. Muhammad Asad translates it as God will secure him. And of course the reason he does that is that he, he's trying to avoid the understanding of Allah giving victory to this person, meaning that it's necessarily a power victory. But the, the, the God's victory can come in many forms, whether in this earth or in the hereafter. But the verse, this ayah then ends with Allah is most forgiving. Afu ghafur. A number of commentators said, okay, so why would God mention forgiveness in the context of saying that if you respond to an injustice proportionately, so you punish as you have been punished, But then you are the subject of further injustice. 
why would God mention forgiveness here? Some commentators said, well, because elsewhere, God tells us that forgiveness is always the higher moral ground. Although that, I mean, there is a certain sense to that, is that as if, say, reminding you that, well, you know, if you are able to rise above the injustice you suffer, remember that as God is forgiving, so should you be. That's the logic of that. But there is something still not addressed or not satisfactory in that is in that understanding because god is telling these muslims respond those who respond proportionately okay so you've been kicked out of your homes what's your proportionate response to that And then, why the emphasis on even after you, you, you respond, because Muslims had, at this point hadn't responded proportionately. They have been kicked out of their homes. They haven't responded at all. The permission to, to fight came in Surah Al-Hajj. Some commentators said, well, this is a prediction by God that even when they try to respond proportionately, this will not deter Quraysh. But then the meaning becomes locked into the historical events without a further meaning that you can get from the, from the revelation. So, responding proportionately, but if you remain the subject of injustice, so you're not a weak human being, you respond. A weak human being doesn't respond or speaks of forgiveness because of cowardly sentiments rather than ability. God is not talking about a weak human being. God is talking about those who, in fact, do respond to injustice. They address the injustice that befalls them. But they remain and here is not just is not necessarily treachery, but to remain the subject of injustice. At that point, Allah says, لَيَنْصُرَنَّهُ Allah," That Allah stands with them. Okay, so I've asked you to keep Hijra in mind. I'm also going to ask you to keep this verse in mind, 60. Because it will make sense 
when we take the entire message of Surah Al-Hajj. Okay. Then, at this point, there's another shifting gears, and Allah reminds us that there is a constant motion to creation. And that although you might be tempted that to think that this creation works automatically, that is not the case. In fact, the cycle between night and day The passage of time, when we talk about the cycle, that cycle is the motion, it's often a reference to the motion of time itself and to the constant movement of creation. That Allah is in the center of this movement. And Allah is Samia and Basir. That regardless of how often you are tempted to think that God is not all perceiving, all involved, indeed God is. وَأَنَّ مَا يَدْعُونَ مِن دُونِهِ هُوَ الْبَاطِلِ وَأَنَّ اللَّهُ هُوَ الْعَلِيدِ كَبِيرِ And again the emphasis that truth in the world that you inhabit Allah هُوَ الْحَقِّ That truth in the world that you inhabit is Allah that is the one constant and stable truth. And that everything else that you believe that you rely on or you come to rely on is not an ultimate truth. That reminder after the mention of the Hijrah and after the mention of the dynamics of justice, you suffer an injustice, you respond to that injustice proportionately. A disproportionate response takes us out of the game. But then, despite your response, you continue to suffer. So, and then God shifts gear to the idea that what is the truth in this existence? The truth is Allah and everything else is but a mirage of that truth. Okay. And the mention of creation continues, continues, but comes full circle again as Allah talks about 
السماوات والأرض and سخر لكم الفلك the laws of, of, um, of, of physics that allows water to have the properties that the water does have and allows the air to have the properties that air has. And this, uh, by the way, this, this interesting reference, or, or I mean, noteworthy, وَيُمْسِكُ السَّمَاءَ أَنْ تَقَعَ عَلَى الْأَرْضِ In the idea that the the atmosphere surrounding the earth could or the the atmosphere enveloping the earth could easily collapse and be it's 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 sort of the fine tuned equilibrium that allows this ozone not to be pulled to the earth through gravity and not to yet evaporate and expand and simply get lost in the atmosphere. That fine balance it, to the medieval mind was entirely incomprehensible. So, you know, you read some very interesting um, speculative thoughts about what could possibly God mean by the heavens not falling on earth because they, you know it it they had no frame of reference for it anyway so the properties that, that these basic laws of creation which we take for granted but which God is embedded in all these laws and in the mystery of existence as God is embedded in the mystery of consciousness then it comes full circle to the cycle of life of death again. That as Allah gave you consciousness, you will lose this consciousness. And as you will lose this consciousness, you will regain this consciousness. And a very simple logic, إِنَّ insana لَكَفُورٌ but yet human beings although if they reflect upon the miracle of consciousness in the first go around the miracle of consciousness in the second go around will stop being so stunningly inaccessible I mean why are you so puzzled by consciousness in the second go around while consciousness in the first go-round, the fact that you have consciousness in this go-round, is stunningly incomprehensible, equally incomprehensible. But yet, human beings, part of their, their, their stubbornness and part of their, their the tendency of being towards ingratitude and argumentativeness is precisely in the insana la kafur, human beings yet constantly stumble over what they ought not stumble over. Okay. Then, so, just a quick reminder, we have the concept of hijrah, we have the concept 
of justice, response to injustice, and yet the matter is not resolved despite your willingness or your 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 despite the 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 act of actually responding to injustice then surah al-hajj comes to a for a medieval text something that is mind blowing says لكل أمة جعلنا منسكا هم ناسكوه فلا ينازعنك في الأمر وادع إلى ربك إنك لعلى هدى مستقيم وإن جادلوك فقل الله أعلم بما تعملون الله يحكم بينكم يوم القيامة فيما كنتم فيه تختلفون so this is 67, 68, and 69. So, unto every community, we have appointed different ways of worship, which they ought to observe. Hence, do not let those who follow ways other than thine other than yours, draw you into disputes on the score, but summon them all unto thy sustainer, for behold, you are indeed on the right way. And if they try to argue with you, say only, God knows best what you are doing, for indeed God will judge between you between you all on Resurrection Day with regard to all on which you were want to differ. So, at this point where they are expelled and they are embarking upon Hijra and they are going to Medina, who is the Quran talking to? When the Quran comes and says, for each people we've create immensekan hum nasiku. Now, mansekan, immensek is ritual, is a way of worshiping, is even a way of life. Mensek could also be a way of life. And then, so this is a, a God saying diversity, including differences in systems of belief and differences in laws and differences in worship and differences in ritual is intended by God. And then, Allah tells the Prophet, and 
in speaking to the prophet speak, speaks to the followers of the prophet. So don't don't let this become a matter of disputation. It's like saying they have their way, you have your way. So when they come to argue with you, just tell them God knows best. And tell them, you know what? All these differences between us, God will settle in the hereafter. If you've read Locke and you've read Rousseau and you've read all the great Western treatises on tolerance, this is the extent to which they say all the great philosophies of tolerance don't go beyond this. And yet they're told this at a time when if you're a human being talking to you and you're trying to cheer your followers because they've just been expelled from your ho their homes and you need them to support you so you can fight the fight, what would you tell them? Would you tell them they have, each person has their way and let's not argue? What you would tell them is, we're right. We are absolutely right and everyone else is wrong. And you are so right, you are so chosen, you are so special. No one is like you. And this is at a time when Muslims They're being, they're under siege by Christians, they're under siege by Jews, they're under siege by everyone that has not accepted Islam, which is everyone. And yet God comes and says, the extent to which, so the measures of iqab, the measures of justice and injustice and responding to injustice has nothing to do with rituals, has nothing to do with systems of belief. Whether you are responding to the aggression of others, it has to do with the fact that you have been kicked out of your homes and the fact that you've been denied the sanctuary of Ibrahim, which is sacred space owed by God. But it's not about eradicating different systems of belief. And for God to be telling, or for the text to come and tell the followers of the Prophet this, at this time is mind-boggling. Because if you're a human being, you're going to be worried that, wait, are they going to start telling the prophet, well, why do we have to go to war? Didn't your God tell you that each is entitled to his own? And in fact, what is amazing is that those who didn't, those who were reluctant about, who opposed the Prophet's policies in Medina, in the Battle of Uhud, 
and the Battle of the Ahzab used you find these remarkable reports in which some of them in fact say well you know why 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 do we have to enlist in this battle it is again the the, the text is remarkable because of how surprising it is and especially in the context of the entire message of Surah Al-Hajj, as in, we'll see, inshallah. Okay. So, understand as you embark upon this next phase that disbelief will remain, differences will remain, different laws and different rituals and different systems will remain. And the preferred, what you are, if you have a choice, what you're supposed to say is, God knows best, God will resolve the disputes, you have your way, I have my way. Not a particularly good way for, to get your team to win, you know, a, a, a match, but this is not a match. And this is precisely part of the point. Okay. So, and Allah reminding us, وَيَعْبُدُونَ This is 71. مِن دُونِ اللَّهِ مَا لَمْ يُنَزِّلْ بِهِ سُلْطَانًا وما ليس لهم به علم وما للظالمين من نصير So Allah reminds us again the tendency for human beings here you يعبدون could be that they actually worship in the way that Qurayshis worshipped idols but also it could be any form in which you defer to the authority of what you hold in special reverence over God. So it's as if Allah is saying, you know, all these other things that you hold in in reverence and that you submit to, that you defer to, if you truly understood the extent to which all of that is contingent upon the divine about upon the divine that the only haq is in fact the divine and the rest is a mirage and an illusion you wouldn't defer you you would it would become quite obvious to you why it is nonsensical to submit to anything else but al-haq. But of course, that's not the state of most human beings. And in fact, Allah comes and says, وَإِذَا تُطْلَ عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتُنَا بَيِّنَاتٍ تَعْرِفُ فِي وُجُوهِ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا الْمُنْكَرِ 
يكادون يسطون بالذين يتلون عليهم آياتنا قل أفأنبئكم بشر من ذلكم النار وعدها الله الذين كفروا وبئس المصير So note that while Allah says people have different paths people have different laws that doesn't mean don't call for the truth don't advocate for the truth in fact if you go back to 67 it says so yes difference is intended by God but your job is da'wah is to advocate for the truth and if people close shut their minds and their ears and refuse to listen then and in fact are willing to fight with you tell them God knows the truth and God will resolve our differences now but the reality is of course to the Prophet and to his followers this is very familiar in verse 72 which let's go to the translation just so as it is whenever our messages are conveyed unto them in all their clarity thou canst perceive utter repugnance on the faces of those who are bent on denying the truth they would almost assault those who convey our messages unto them so the response In this is not just a, a, a telling of what is familiar to Muslims at time of the Prophet but Allah telling us what Allah knows is going to become part of the Sunnah in the dynamics of Dawah. That yes, difference exists, but people become committed to their laws to their way of life to their habits to their rituals as if these things are of sacred status people deal with them as if they are in a state of ibadah and so when allah says Understand that your job is rabbik That you have to call for Sirat al-Mustaqim. But also understand that often the way people will respond to being called onto the truth to advocacy, to your attempt to teach or to convey or to communicate, is they will look at you with utter repugnance. They will look at you with utter disgust. 
And in fact, they will look at you livid as if you will get the sense that it's as if they wish they could pounce on you. The expression here is amazing because Yastun literally means to pounce on them. That they, as they are hearing what is being told to them, it's the Yastun is it's as if they, they are, are like hardly restraining themselves. Now we know that by the time Surah Al Hajj is revealed. Mecca has moved to violence. It had assaulted numerous Muslims and even tortured and killed many Muslims. But that expression is setting is setting your expectations, and as we will see, for a very specific reason in this dynamic, you will confront this process of repugnance and people who respond to what is pure, to al-haq, by, in a very threatening and unpleasant way, as if they want to pounce on you. Okay. Then we go to 73 and 74. Oh, people, ya ayyuhannas, ya people, Allah is going to tell you a parable, so listen to it. Listen carefully. And the parable is well, let's take first the translation of it. A parable is set forth Herewith hearken then to it. Behold those beings whom you invoke instead of God cannot create as much as a fly, even were they to join all their forces to that end. And if a fly robs them of anything, they cannot even rescue it from, from, rescue it from it. Weak indeed is the seeker, and weak is the sought. No true understanding of God have they who err in this way, for verily God is most powerful and almighty. Now, in the traditions, it is reported that there is a, there is a context to this parable. And although I'm, I'm not convinced that that is a convincing context, I have to tell you, but anyway... You, you, the context is that 
the Meccans would often um, uh, glaze the idols with things like honey and shiny things like honey that would attract flies. And so commentators say that the reason God chose the fly as an example is that the, the, the irony of flies landing on the idols to feed. And I don't know. I mean, whether you think this is very convincing that, but the parable you pause and you think, why a fly? I mean, if fly, yes, okay, so a fly is so small, if fly feeds in, in imperceptible ways to us, um, but at the same time, a fly is extremely powerful. If you, for, for the, the role that flies play in their resilience, their survivability, you can never make, you can never extinguish flies from existence. Their, their, the, the evolution from larva to a flying creature, it's like their own hijra, but then to play a, a very sinister role in the spread of disease and illness and illness takes this huge human being with all their thoughts and ideas and feelings and renders them flat or even kills them. It is the more you read about flies, the more you are fascinated by this but and there's also another association which I only found one person that alluded to it. Um, the demonic, when it manifests, often attracts flies. Um, if you've ever been to in the presence of um, um, places where the demonic has infested. Um, being infested with flies is one of the very, very common signs, regardless of how cold it is. Um, they seem to appear from nowhere. Flies are fascinating. 
just their eyes are fascinating. I mean, leave alone their, their, the way they feed and their legs. And, anyway. Okay. Okay. Then we will approach the closing of Surah Al-Hajj. And then, as I said, I will go back and tie these ends that I told you to keep in mind. Um, okay. So, after reminding us in 75 that Allah is not just involved in all or embedded in, 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 in every aspect of creation, but that there, are, there is a further connection, and that is the connection of the messengers, whether angels or prophets or, or messengers of God. And Allah is intimately also involved through God's knowledge that Allah knows everything that we've done and everything that we do. Knowledge is an intimacy. When, when, when you know someone well, you are intimate with this person. When you know a subject well, you are intimate with the subject. Knowledge is intimacy. And God's knowledge of us is God's intimacy with us. And the more you know about God, the more you are intimate with God. And the less you know about God, the more alienated from God. Okay. So now, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, irka'u wasjudu wa'abudu rabbakum wa'f'alu al-khayr la'allakum tuflihun. So now, what is the conclusion? What does God want from us? So first comes irka'u wasjudu. For prostration, ruku' and sujood, there there are some reports that say that until Surah Al-Hajj, that Muslims used to pray just standing up, and then after Surah Al-Hajj, they started doing ruku' and sujood. That's not very reliable, and is contradicted by other evidence. So, but you know, but that the reference to ruku' and sujood is a reference that the way you connect with God is in a vigilant state of worship. But the second, look at how simple and straightforward that is. This refers to the, this, this again refers to that khutbah that I gave yesterday. So do Good. So it is this duality. 
the way you're going to know God as God knows you. We said knowledge is intimacy. So it is ruku' and sujood. But fundamentally, what you are charged with is fa'l al-khayr, to do good. Now, this, of course, if you are a person who doesn't understand the the difference between manasik and al-khayr, you will say, well, when God says, if al-khayr, God is just saying, do rituals. But no, God covered that in farqa'u wasjudu. The rituals, God already covered in ruku' and sujood. Do good is an affirmative obligation to understand what is good so that you can perform what is good. But lest you, this is, strike that, this is further clarified than with 78. So, what does that mean? Let's see how Muhammad Asad states 78. So, he's going to choose the most straightforward way. So, Muhammad Asad says, And strive hard in God's cause with all the striving that is due to God. وَجَاهِدُ فِي اللَّهِ حَقَّ جِهَادِهِ Jihad is what you are performing constant jihad. Jihad, as you know, is a consistent, persistent struggle. It's a a a, a challenge and a struggle. Fillah. It is not that you are doing the jihad for God, but you are doing the jihad literally in God. So, haqqa jihad, as God is worthy of the struggle. The meaning that was reached by people like Jilani and Ibn Arabi and the, most of the Sufis is the correct one. Is that your struggle, your jihad is in the same way that God knows you. Your struggle is to know God. To develop that intimacy with God. As God is worthy. Now imagine what is the worthiness of God? So, the extent of that struggle is to the in proportion to your understanding of the worthiness of the cause. But, 
هو اشتباكم now here اشتباك محمد اسد translates so محمد اسد translates اشتباك as he is one who it's he God who has elected you اشتباك is to is how do I put it is to nominate someone for a role to put forward someone for a role without that someone being chosen because of a special status so when I although in modern Arabic we don't use this word um, anymore but it's it's still in in eloquent Arabic you would if you say I've nominated someone but not because of their wealth or age or class or sex but I've nominated someone to a role you say not Ikhtiyar is to pick someone that could be because they are indeed chosen. They're superior. So the expression here is, is, is remarkable. So God is the one who nominated you for this role. But the purpose is not for you to suffer in this role. That if you think the point of your jihad in God or the point of this role as Muslims is for you to inflict suffering upon yourself, that's not the case. This is not what this is about. What this is about is that this is the same message of Millat Ibrahim, the one who was given the, the sacred space, or the sacred space was who God identified the sacred space. And there is a debate within the Islamic tradition, although modern Muslims rarely know about this debate, that say, is it here saying that it is Ibrahim who called you Muslims or is it God who called you Muslims? Who does Huwa refer to? Personally, I think it is Ibrahim, but just so you know that there is this debate in the Islamic tradition about who the Huwa refers to, the, the he or the, the um, so this is the same milla, the same face from the very beginning of the Prophet Ibrahim wasalam. It's like there's nothing new. There are different manasik 
but it is the same truth. Don't get confused into thinking that there that God had variance on the truth. Now, of course, this also becomes critical once you put uh, uh, um, keep in mind that Surah Al-Baqarah will come and say that there are no chosen people. That that Millet Ibrahim, the message of Ibrahim was always the same. You, Jews are not chosen, you're not chosen, no one is chosen. So what is what is the the essence of this Millah? Is that The essence, the core of this message is the task of testifying. Now, note I've written this down somewhere. My notes here. Okay, yeah. So so the Prophet will testify, will testify, the Prophet's obligation is to bear witness. But those of you who follow this Prophet, your task is to be able to bear witness Bear witness as to what? Well, we know that in Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah will come and then say, That we've made you Ummah, Ummah of literally a positional Ummah, Ummah of moderation and medium. So you are placed situationally within the mores and ethics of humanity. This will come in Surah Al-Baqarah, and one fourteen, and that the, again Allah will repeat that. And the, and the Prophet will bear witness as to you. Now, and we also know that in Surah An-Nisa, which is revealed later, as well as in Surah Al-Ma'idah, which is revealed later, Allah will specify that that you will bear witness as to justice or either you will serve God by bearing witness to justice or serve justice by bearing witness for God. So the, the shahada 
in the revelation that comes in Surah Al-Baqarah and Surah Al-Nisa and Surah Al-Ma'idah is further specified that it is a testimony that is situational, positional, by in terms of a medium. You, you, you are not a people of extremities. In order to understand the medium of a something, you have to understand the nature of a something. If you don't understand the contours and the edges, you can never measure the medium. The basic, the most basic idea of scales of justice. But then this is even explicitly spelled out when Allah says, Shuhada or vice versa. That Shuhada that you are essentially embedded in bearing witness for what Allah already told you that what is the relationship of human beings to the divine and what is the relationships of human beings to khair to goodness. Okay. So now, so Surah Al-Hajj comes to tell you this is the sacred space, a primordial sacred space that has a very special relationship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You human beings, you Muslims, are not a chosen people, but this is chosen space. And this space, Allah refers to as Bayti, God's home, or God's abode. But, and God refers to as al-bayt al-atiq, the primordial home. It's as if the timeless home. And Allah remind, Allah refers also that the journey to this primordial space comes from every fajamiq, from every distant place. But fajamiq, it's the expression itself. It's as if saying from every distant space, but it has equality to it. That it is nearly as if saying every distant space beyond geography. You say Fej Amiq. Fej literally is a, a a a breach 
or a hole or a cave. Amiq, deep, far, far away. So it is a location that is beyond location. And this is all instigated by what? By Nida Ibrahim. Ibrahim stands and Allah says, Azzin, call. And Ibrahim says, My voice will not reach anyone. Allah says, You call. And you leave the rest. So Nida Ibrahim is not a physical thing. It is not sound waves. It is as if this prime this primordial call from a primordial place that reaches into space beyond space. Okay. What is the response to this call? Allah reminds us in Surah Al-Hajj, reflect upon your lives. It is a journey. It is a journey like everything that surrounds you. Night and day, the flow of water, the properties of life and death, but it is a journey. And like everything else that journeys on this earth, it is anchored in one truth, Al-Haq, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Everything else is shadows and mirage. Okay. So what is the point though? The point is precisely this, the hijrah. You are journeying in the same way that you do the physical journey to Mecca to perform the rituals of Hajj. But that's symbolic. That's symbolism. It's symbolic for something else. That if you truly understand what your life is about, it is journeying to God's house, to God's primordial home. That home, the primordial home, if it is truly understood for what it is, it is the home of all humanity. It doesn't mean that all humanity has a right to settle there. No one has a right to settle there. That's the whole point, is that, in fact, it is the home of divinity, with all that divinity represents. Put differently, it is the home of shahada. It is the home of the true hijrah. It is the home of the true shahada. What is the home of the true hijrah and the home of the true shahada? Well, the, the true hijrah is to the primordial space of your Lord. And the true shahada is to true justice. 
your Hijra, this home, this Mecca, is supposed to symbolize what you are bearing witness to. A place in which equity and justice and honesty and truth is supposed to be protected as sacred representations of the haq, of the truth. Now, you've been given permission to fight, given permission to fight, but Fighting is not in itself. It, it, fighting is to address a wrong. God, where God's nasr is ultimately with those who suffer, who suffer baghi. Those it's like saying God is with the oppressed. So first, the oppressed cannot be meek. The oppressed cannot be weak. The oppressed must be willing to reciprocate in proportion. If they go beyond, then they're no longer oppressed, they're unjust. But if they reciprocate, in other words, they're not cowardly, they're strong, but they still suffer baghi, that's where you find Nusratillah. That's where you find, and here Nusra is, is, is not in terms of the way we understand victory, in terms of power dynamics. Nusra is put differently. Imam al Hussein was martyred. Who had Nasrullah? Was it those who killed Imam al Hussein or Imam al Hussein? It's Imam al Hussein. Because Allah's Nasr, Allah's alliance, Allah's presence, Allah's truth, is with those who suffer an injustice. Those who are persecuted, not the persecutors. Imam al Hussein did what he could. He attempted to address an injustice in proportion. Earthly victory and loss is a matter of power dynamics, but it is not Nasrullah. So, a Nasr is in the process of the insistence on Ibadatullah, that you worship God, was shahada lillah that you bear witness for God. 
So it is not the iqab. So why is it that they are told all of this as they are migrating to Medina? Because the charge is not that they gain a victory over the Qurayshis. That's up to Allah. That's power dynamics. The charge is that they bear witness. That's how they get Nasrullah. Is that they bear witness as to the truth, as to justice. Now that Allah has allowed them to escape oppression, they are going to Medina to bear witness not to earn military victories. And that is precisely why it is critical that they understand what is it that they're leaving behind. Because they're going to go in Medina to testify that this is the sacred space of Ibrahim, Millat Ibrahim. And that the obligation is to Tuslimu lillah, that you surrender to Allah. And that we have an obligation to iqamat al-qist, and this is what our life in Medina is going to be about. This is precisely also why you find repeatedly in later revelations, Allah responds to external threats by addressing an issue of internal justice. It's like, yeah, yeah, there is an external threat. Victory and loss, that's in God's hands. Al-Mulk lillah. But your obligation is to witness justice and testify for justice. Two critical concepts in in this too. Makkanahum fil ard, the idea of tamkin, that if, and tamkin here, any level of empowerment in to, to the extent you are entrusted in a space that you establish prayer, take care of the needy, and the essential heart and core of witnessing, al-amr bil-ma'roof wa-nahi'an al-munkar. And in at the same time that Allah tells us that there are different sha'ir for different people, but Allah also tells us that ta'zim sha'irillah that having a deep sense of reverence, awe, and respect 
for the laws that you've been given. Because often people make the mistake of thinking that because there is difference, that means that that the, the essence of or the importance of thing. So it's like saying, well, if religion is so, it was so important, why are there so many different religions? That's, that's a logical fallacy. The fact that there are many different things, it doesn't mean, so, you know, the fact that there are many different types of cars, it doesn't mean that cars are not important. It doesn't even mean that one car, perhaps, is better than the rest of all of them. It doesn't mean that, in fact, maybe there's one car, one brand of car, that has the essence of cardom, while all the rest, it eludes them. Difference. So, Allah anchors among Muslims, ta'zim sha'airillah, that the laws you've been given, part of taqwa qulub, the, 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 that you are charged with knowing God as God knows you. But in order to have that type of taqwa, it is not possible unless you are, you understand, you have that reverence towards God's speech and God's commands. If you take this matter lightly, then the whole relationship unravels. My final note, You know, I thought, I, I had expected that, you know, I pray on the surah, and Allahu A'lam, I expected surah al-Hajj to come earlier, but it didn't. And in some ways, surah al-Hajj it's like um, the culmination of a thing although we know that it was revealed right before the beginning of the Medina period. But to understand that your entire life is but a hijra to the abode of your Lord and to understand that that primordial place that has a timeless call that extends beyond space to hear that call to hear Ibrahim's call in your consciousness in your heart to heed that call, to understand that your life is but a journey to answer that call, 
it makes perfect sense for it to come towards the end of a thing rather than the beginning of a thing. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. All right, I, alhamdulillah, I, I, honestly, I'm like just rendered speechless because this was, um, this was such a monumental close to our, our journey with um, Surah Al-Hajj and also, I mean, I think it kind of um, turns our attention towards sort of the end of this journey, Project Illumin, even though we still are, you know, this is our 83rd surah. Um, but you know, you feel um, you feel the weight of this this whole message, and there was so much in this just in this day that to me was completely mind blowing. Like I have to ask the question: when when God makes it clear that we are not fighting about what we believe, that there's so many different paths and so many different beliefs, and that that's not the issue. Um, but it's about justice and witnessing, witnessing and being, you know, standing up for injustice or standing against injustice. Um, honestly, it like makes me just look at where we are as Muslims and say, what the hell are we doing? You know, all of this fighting, all of this, um, you know, bickering, even like the whole Sunni Shi'i divide thing that, you know, we were talking about before. I mean, it's like none of that matters and we've forgotten or did we not know that this is what the Quran told us? That if God tells us, okay, you're on the right path, but this, the, all of the stuff that you're arguing about, there are different ways, different, you know, all of that, that's not the point. The point is whether you're testifying for justice and, you know, uh, it, it just, it, it just humbles you because you feel like we've been completely lost in the woods and lost track of the bigger message. Um, and that this, this just pulls the rug out from everyone in terms of like all of this infighting. What are we, what are we doing, you know? Um, but there's so much here. Um, I know we talked about whether here before I came up, whether we should do a Q&A because I feel like this, the, there was so much given to us that we just need to process it. I mean, it's just like the key to everything. Um, and so we, we were thinking that maybe what we would do is, um, you know, finish here and then do uh, maybe the, a combined Q&A for Surah Al-Hajj and whatever the next Surah is. Um, but, you know, it's, and it's always shocking, like, when, when we see what is presented to us in these halakas and what's happening even in our little community here, our little Usuli bubble and the things that we've been talking about, you know, like the primordial, I know, you know, in the convert conversation I had with Joe and Witzke, the idea of connecting to the primordial, um, <clears throat> you know, the, um, obviously like the, the Sunni Shi'i, the things that are happening, you know, with the Saudi student that was um, arrested for retweeting, you know, all of the sacredness of Mecca and, and the questions we've had about Hajj and is it, you know, is it, haram to go to Hajj when it's under control of Islamophobes. I mean, all of this is just everything, just you see this symphonic connection of all the things that we're talking about, and then it comes down to the clarity of justice and injustice being on a hijra to Allah. So, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, there's too much to process. <laughs> so, anyway, alhamdulillah, um, thank you is not enough. I mean, I don't even know, I'm speechless, so. Uh, is it Hajj adopted? Actually, I don't know. I think it is. It I'm is adopted? Can someone look it up? It is. It is? Okay, I'm forgetting who. who Hajj is adopted. Alhamdulillah. 
<laughs> Someone is very lucky. Um, so what a wonderful way to to finish um, Saturday night. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Thank you, everyone, for being with us. Um, now we move to the once-a-week schedule. So next week we start at the law school. Um, but, you know, send me your questions as they come to you and, you know, hold on to them. And inshallah, we will get to them when we, I guess, finish after the next surah. So Alhamdulillah. Inshallah. Alhamdulillah. Okay. Uh, thank you, everybody. Inshallah, we will have a great week, and we will see you soon, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum. alaikum.